Welcome to the Unwritten Life Podcast, where we share that your deepest pain can lead to your biggest gain, and that your story is still unwritten. Now introducing your host, Tim Sawhook. Welcome to the show today, everybody. I'm so excited to have you on board for another episode of the Unwritten Life Podcast. As always, I am your host, Tim Sawhook, and I'm really happy that you joined us here today for a little bit of hope, encouragement, and motivation. We have another great conversation for you today on the podcast, but before we get into that, we do have a little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to thank you for downloading the episode last week and listening to Kendra Zaru's podcast. She really touched a lot of hearts. I was getting a lot of messages from people that said, you know, the way she told her story, the strength, and the way she conveyed almost a blueprint of how to get through the grief and to deal with it was really powerful. So thanks so much for downloading it. I appreciate it. And again, we continue to ask you to spread the word. Share the podcast with people. If you are enjoying it, please leave a written review on iTunes and just keep on helping spread that message of hope. That's what it's all about. And I know a lot of you guys have reached out to me and are feeling that hope, and I really appreciate that. Well, in today's episode, I'm going to do something that I haven't done yet before. If you've been listening, as you well know, that we cover a variety of topics on the podcast. Um, The stories are powerful, they're raw, they're real. Sometimes it may not be easy for you to listen to or get through, Um, but I'm never going to steer away from a conversation just because it's hard. I think it's very important that all these stories need to be told, no matter if they're difficult to listen to or not. And along those lines, I'm just going to say today that listener discretion is advised. I know that some of you have told me that you do listen with younger ears around sometimes, and uh, with that in mind, I just wanted you guys to know that today. But like I said a moment ago, we have a great episode today, another powerful interview, and I want to get right into it. So my guest today, she is a mom, she is a wife, she is a survivor, and she is a great friend of mine. Here is my conversation with Michelle Cousins. Well, Michelle Cousins, welcome to the show today. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Tim? I am doing good. Thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the podcast to share your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me be here. Yeah, no, this is going to really impact a lot of people's lives. But before we get into the meat of your story, why you're on the podcast today, tell us what it was like before. Like before you got married, how did you meet your husband and things like that? Okay. So I have always considered myself to be a very outgoing woman before young girl. Um, lots Mm -hmm. of friends, um, of both sexes, men, women, boys, girls. Um, so I met my husband, um, through mutual friends that we had, um, a young lady and a young man that I knew and that happened to know Dan, but for some reason our paths had never crossed before. Um, and I worked with this, um, young lady, Denise, um, and her friend Mike would come in all the time. So at one point they were like, you know what? We think you would be an awesome fit for our friend Dan. And he's looking for a date to a wedding. Why he had replied to a wedding invitation that he was going to bring a guest when he wasn't (laughs) dating anyone. I don't know. But he needed a date. So they said to me, would you be up for it? So I was like, sure. So um, they actually arranged for Dan and I to meet before the wedding. So Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be totally uncomfortable. And we met uh, mid-May of 91 at a local Chinese restaurant um, with Denise and Mike. So it was kind of like a double date type thing. 
and I actually happened to be celebrating. That was my last day of finals, and I was going to be preparing to graduate from school. Um, Denise and I both were. Mm-hmm. So we met that night at the Chinese restaurant. Uh, my first impression of Dan was that he was really nice looking, very nice looking. Um, I was super nervous, but um, the night went well. The only thing I can say is Dan was very shy, very shy. Mm-hmm. And I was more of an outgoing person, so it was hard to get to know him. He didn't put a lot into the conversation. Right. Um, but he asked if I wanted to go to that wedding with him. It was like the following week, so I said, yes, I would. And I can remember my family and friends asking me after that night, what did you think of Dan? And I said, you know, to be honest with you, he seems like a nice guy. Totally not my type, though. (laughs) Very shy, um, you know, not outgoing. So I said, I'll go to the wedding with him. But after that, not going to see him anymore because he's not my type. Right. So we went to the wedding um, together. And the first half of the night, again, trying to get conversation out of him was like pulling teeth. And I started thinking in my head, all right, halfway through the reception, I'm going to tell this guy I don't feel good so he can take me home. (laughs) I can have a good night. So you were going to bail on him at the wedding? I was because he just didn't talk. (laughs) He was like so shy. So we got to the reception and things turned around because the Boston Bruins happened to be playing a playoff game the night of this reception and they were playing it at the bar next to the function you know as part of the function hall so we would pop over there during the reception to check on how the Bruins were doing and he had like a couple of beers and you know I had a couple wine and lo and behold between watching the Bruins and the couple of beers he loosened right up (laughs) and you know they couldn't shut him off (laughs) so it turned out yeah, we did get along, and I actually didn't get home till four in the morning that night from the wedding um, because we were just having so much fun talking mm-hmm. and being together, and um, we're pretty much inseparable after that night. So you were twenty three, you were mm-hmm. just getting out of college, finishing finals, and you guys had started dating and had become inseparable. What was it like after that? Um, it was good, but there was looking back now, I think there was some situations that it should have taken more seriously but at the time chalked up to just being young and in love um there was one instant when we were out at a local club um here on the south shore i had gone out with my girlfriends for the night dan had gone out with his friends and we happened to end up at the same place not planned just happened to end Mm -hmm. up there and i had run into a friend from high school that i hadn't seen for about five years as I previously said, um, I had always had a large circle of friends, which included both men and women, or boys and girls, if you want to go back that young. <laughs> so I had gone over to give this friend, who happened to be a male, a big hug. I was excited to see him. We had been great friends in high school. Mm-hmm. When out of nowhere, Dan came bolting across the um, bar yanked me back from my friend, started yelling at me in my face about what did I think I was doing. You know, he saw that to the point that I think it alerted the doorman or the bouncer, if they're called, of what was going on and came over and had to remove Dan from the club and check on how I was doing. Mm-hmm. And my friends questioned me at the time saying, you really want to be with someone like this? And I was like, 
he didn't mean anything by it. You know, he loves me. You know, right. he doesn't know that this gentleman and I have been friends from before. So I kind of, you know, I made excuses for him, which looking back now, that's not rational behavior. <laughs> right. Well, at this point, did you think, okay, even though this is negative attention, I'm still getting attention. Someone really wants me and is claiming me as theirs. So it's okay. I, I feel yep, like. Exactly. Okay. So what was it like after that first time that happened? Um, his drinking became, you know, I was always kind of worried about it. Did he drink too much? And then I would kind of play it off. You know what? We're in our early 20s. That's mm -hmm. what being in your early 20s is supposed to be about, you know, doing all those things you want to do now, you know, having too much to drink, having the shots. Um, so, again, just kind of played it off that due to age, um, the fact that he was a guy, maybe, mm -hmm. and that liked to go out with his friends and get drunk. So at, at this point, you know, you do have some cause for concern. Some your friends, some of your girlfriends are saying, are you sure this is someone you want to be dating long term? Um, but you're really just, you know, hey, he's young. We're both young. People drink. It happens. He, he really loves me. That's why he's being protective of me, things like that. Is that what you're feeling at this point? I was, and I think part of me felt, too, like, because as I said earlier, Dan was very nice-looking, and the fact that someone that nice-looking, I felt, was so interested in me mm -hmm. and wanted to have a relationship like this with me, um, I was so happy and excited. Like, I see he was like a catch, like, that, right. you know, to be so nice-looking, but to want me. So, again, so, it was, it's about being wanted, getting that attention, being, even if it was negative, you were still getting that attention, and that created value for you. You felt valuable. I did, yes. So, as this progresses, you guys have been dating for a while. Did you guys start talking about marriage? We did, yep. Um, and I was, again, very excited to think that someone like Dan would want to spend the rest of his life with me. Um, even though I was just finishing up college, I had had a string of very bad relationships and was kind of thinking, even though I was still young, that marriage wasn't going to be a possibility for me, that I would never mm -hmm. be a mom. Um, so the fact that Dan wanted the same things I did to get married, to have children, I was over the moon, like excited. Mm -hmm. um, my life seemed like it was off to a good, you know, I had just finished college. Um, I was working. Um, you know, Dan wanted to get married. Everything was falling into light. Right. That's how people line it up. You know, we get we get older, we graduate, we find someone we fall in love with, and we want to start a family with them. So, of course, and, you know, and nobody's perfect in any relationship, so everyone's going to bring a little bit of baggage in with them, and we accept that because, mm -hmm. you know, when you love somebody, you accept them for who they are, what they have with them at the time, and, and then you invite them into your life so you guys can start one together. So you're at this point now, so you guys did get married. What was it like after you first got married? Um, again, some ups and downs, as I would think. I can remember um, one really bad fight we had probably two months into our marriage. We were living in an apartment in Weymouth, mm -hmm. and it was a fight over a can opener. <laughs> um, and he had been, it was a Sunday afternoon, so he had been drinking um, which guys are supposed to do, I guess, on Sunday's afternoon. Mm -hmm. But I was having difficulty with the can opener. I was getting frustrated. He was tired of listening to my frustration. So he came in the kitchen, took the can opener out of my hand, and threw it across the room. 
um, was yelling at me um, that I was stupid for not knowing how to use the can opener. Um, so I left the apartment, went to my mom's house for a while, um, and then went back, kind of chalked it up to one of the newlywed arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did, he apologized afterwards for it. And again, like I said, just chucked it up to one of those things. I lived at home until I was married. He lived at home till he was married. So figured it was just going to be getting used to our different styles and personalities. Right. So again, at this point, you know, you're very new to being married. You're very new to having these experiences of maybe somebody getting angry over something small. But again, like you said, you guys have both lived with your parents until now, so you're just kind of getting used to each other. Um, did you find this to be something that you would reason in your head for a long time like that? Um, when little things like this would happen, you would reason them away? Oh, yes, always. Um, and a lot of times I felt like it was my fault um, for pushing him. I had been difficult as a teenager um, mm-hmm. to my mom, you know, argumentative, and figured that was crossing over into my adult years um, and figured that maybe I was just a difficult person to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times I felt our arguments were my fault. Every time that you guys argued or something happened, was it always with a quick apology afterwards from your husband? Um, sometimes it might be the next day, but usually okay. an apology would follow. And then everything would just kind of go back to the way it was. Right. We wouldn't talk about it anymore. Okay. And so as you're very early into your marriage and stuff, when did um, things start to evolve, maybe get a little worse? Did you guys talk about having a family first? What was going on in your life at that point? Um, we moved out of the apartment. We bought a, a house together, a townhouse. Um, you know, and I got pregnant with our oldest son, Kyle. And at that point, we were like more into our mid or late 20s. Um, mm-hmm. So you would think at that point, you're kind of leaving those party days behind. Um, except there were quite a few times while I was pregnant, um, Dan would pick up Saturday shifts to work to bring in extra money. Mm-hmm. He would only supposed to be working till 12. And many nights he didn't come home till 8, 9 o'clock at night. And when he did come home, he would be very intoxicated um, to the point that I had a talk that I was worried that if he got pulled over in that condition, he would mm-hmm. be arrested. Um, or what if he hit someone and killed someone? You know, I was pregnant with our child. Um, but he never really listened to what I would have to say. He always had an excuse for, you know, he was feeling the stress of having our first child together, you know, the extra work. So then I would feel bad because he was, you know, saying he was working extra to provide for us. So I felt like I was putting a stress on him. Right. So after Kyle was born, um, you know, the drinking continued. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I could always find a reason to excuse it because um, he was still, it really wasn't interfering too much in our life at that point. Most of it was on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, we were home. When I did start to, I guess, get concerned again would be if we would go to a family event on the weekend, Dan would um, be drinking heavily, which would be okay, but I would want to drive home because I wouldn't want him driving in that condition, Right. putting myself, Kyle, at risk, as well as others on the road. Um, But he would get very angry at the fact that I would suggest that he was not 
capable of driving mm -hmm. and insist on driving. Um, so our drive home from family events would be with me clutching the door jam, you know, holding on and keeping an eye on him because he would start to nod off while he was driving. So I was always having to wake him up, begging with him, please pull over, mm -hmm. let me drive, crying. And it would just anger him more to the point that I just stopped even mentioning it because I could tell it was making him more angry. And the more angry he got, he would just like speed up while we were driving. Um, almost to that he was going to show me for questioning him right. and his abilities. So when you're, when you're going through this, and maybe we could speak to listeners right now, you're very early on in your marriage. You know, I mean, early on as far as, you know, being in your 20s still. Um, you have a baby now. You have a child. And you're still seeing these things progress. If you could go back to younger Michelle and that younger Michelle was listening right now, what kind of advice would you give to her at that point to say that there, there's something wrong, that you need some help? Um, actually, the same advice I've given to young women that I've seen in this situation, mm -hmm. um, that it's not a sign that someone really loves you when they act jealous like that, um, you know, that are that possessive over you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's something to be worried about. You, if you're in a trusting and loving relationship with someone, they should trust the fact that you do have friends, um, mm -hmm. other people that you want to spend your time with. That's not a sign that they love you. And um, your value shouldn't come from feeling that someone loves you. Um, you know, the way that I felt, like, oh, wow, someone's actually in love with me. Like, that shouldn't have been so important to me right. at the time. Yeah, but I think it's important to recognize that even that you felt that way and you wanted to feel love, there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean that you should be open for any kind of abuse or um, in a relationship where someone is really dominating or domineering, correct? Correct. Um, I think that is a great tip, and I hope people who are in this or maybe know someone who's going through that early on to get that help and to recognize that. Um, how did things progress for you going further? Um, it started to that I would, you know, looking back now, I see my circle of friends got very small. I think because my friends fr felt frustrated watching what was going on. They could see maybe things that I couldn't see mm -hmm. and that frustrated them. Um, you know, Dan didn't like me really going out with friends. I had a child, so I should be home with that child mm -hmm. and, you know, with him taking care of him. Um, why did I need to be out with my friends? I should be happy with the life that I had at home. Um, so, sad, you know, a lot of my friends I didn't see anymore. Um, you know, and as time went on, I would say about four years after the birth of Kyle, I became extremely depressed, very depressed. Mm -hmm. Um wasn't wanting to take care of myself, wasn't wanting to take care of Kyle, didn't really care about anything. Um, and Dan actually got to the point that he told me he didn't love me anymore. I wasn't lovable anymore the way that I was. Um, so I needed to fix it or he was going to take Kyle and leave me because, you know, I couldn't be a good mother to Kyle in the state that I was in. So, Michelle, at that point when you're feeling this depression, were you able to recognize then or even now what really made you feel to, like fall into that depression? Um, 
looking back now, I can see the depression had been going on for a couple of years. Mm. And I actually, when I went to the doctor, it was diagnosed as being, um, well, as being undiagnosed postpartum depression. Okay. um, From having Kyle. But um, also just depression in general, too. Um, Not really liking myself. Right. At that time. um, Didn't like the way I looked. Wasn't happy with my life at that time. Looking back now, it almost seems like I lived like in a... That world seems like black and white now. Like there was no color. Right. In that world. Um, You know, and the doctor... uh, referred me to a therapist also, as well as putting me on an antidepressant mm-hmm. so, and recommended that Dan come with me so we could try to work through these things together so he could understand what I was going through. Uh, but he refused to go with me. He felt mm-hmm. it was my issue, something I needed to deal with on my own. He just kept saying, you need to get better. You need to get better. Um, basically, I needed to get better so that he would fall in love with me again and want to stay with us so did that play even more into your depression so you're already really in a dark place where you said you're not seeing any color it's black and white and the person that's supposed to be your number one support says you're on your own this is your problem you need to fix this if you want me to stay and if you want me to love you again right so that just added to the worry um Mm -hmm. there were nights i would lay awake in bed and envision my future and i could you know, in my head, I was like, I was lucky to get him to fall in love with me once. You know, am I going to be lucky enough to have him fall in love with me a second time? Like, I felt it was all on me mm-hmm. at that point, and to save our family was all on me. You know, he wanted the person back that, you know, he said he fell in love with, which at that time was like a 23-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking, I'm basically a woman in my early 30s. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I would try to talk to him about the side effects I was feeling from the antidepressants I was put on. He didn't want to hear about it. He said that was my problem. Um, Shared with him things that I was feeling. I felt like a bad mom. I felt like a bad wife. I was feeling like a bad daughter due to regrets I had about how I was as a teen. Just everything came pouring out as far as, but he didn't want to hear it. And he actually would turn those confessions if you would call them around and would use those against me um throughout the rest of our marriage in what way would he use those against you do you have an example of something like that um would always if something went wrong hammer home because he knew that was my biggest fear was to not be a good mother um Mm -hmm. that my kids were the world to me um so whenever he so he would always throw that up that i was not a good mother to the boys um he would come up with these people i don't know who they were that he said notice that i wasn't a good mother to the boys and Mm -hmm. that he should leave me and take the boys with him um you know if he was unhappy it was because of me because i was so happy so i'm sorry so um hard to please right as he would put it that you know nothing he did could keep me happy so um it always came back on that was my fault anything you know, his unhappiness. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, his unhappiness was my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of responsibility to carry around. Oh, absolutely. And knowing now that it wasn't your fault, you know, any of those things that he was saying was not your fault. 
Um, how old were your boys at this time that this was going on? Um, Kyle was about 11, and Ryan was two. We had had a second child, Ryan. Okay. Um, which he didn't really want Ryan. Um, I kind of talked him into having Ryan. Mm -hmm. He made a deal with me. He would let me have another child um, if I would let him have a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a bargaining you had going yes. on there. Yeah. Um, but I think that probably plays into your psyche a little bit. If you have another child, he'll want you. He'll want to keep this baby and bring that family closer together. Is that correct? That is correct. And I looked at um, having a chance to do things better this time, mm -hmm. whereas you know, we knew at this point that I had had undiagnosed postpartum depression with Kyle. We would be more on top of it this time with Ryan. So I looked at it as a chance to prove myself that I could be a good mom. Um, even though looking back now, I know I was a good mom mm -hmm. to Kyle. People have told me I was a good mom to Kyle. It was Dan that felt I wasn't a good mom to Kyle. Right. Well, let me jump in and talk about this real briefly because I know this is a very big thing. Can you speak to how powerful and bad postpartum depression can be? I think a lot of people hear that and they're like, eh, someone might just have the blues for a while. But I know it can be very severe and it can lead to really bad consequences. Can you speak to that? It can, yes. Um, as I said, when I undiagnosed for um, me for many years it's not something that will just even go away people think sometimes like you said it's the baby blues and will mm -hmm. pass if undiagnosed it will just stay there and it um, can have um, consequences there were times that I did think about hurting myself because that I felt I was such a bad mother mm -hmm. to Kyle personally for myself I never had thoughts of wanting to hurt Kyle there are you know moms out there that do have thoughts and will fall through on hurting their baby. In my case, my thoughts focused more on wanting to hurt myself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that I, you know, I had brought Kyle into this world that I was such a bad mother to him. He didn't deserve this. Um, I felt my mother didn't deserve a daughter who was like this. My husband didn't deserve a wife who was like this. Mm -hmm. um, and I did actually try to hurt myself um, by taking pills and ended up in the hospital. What was that experience like? What you, what led you to that point? Of wanting to take the pills? Yes. Um, just the fact that everybody would be better off without me. I had, remember taking out a pad of paper and a pen and writing down all the bad things I felt about myself and mm -hmm. what good things I brought to people's lives. And I couldn't come up with one thing that I felt was a good thing that I was adding to people's lives at that point. And the fact that when I would try to share it with my husband, who you think is supposed to be your best friend mm -hmm. and your support and your champion, that he couldn't see anything good in me. They felt there must not have been anything. And that's a, and that's a scary place to be. If anybody's heard my story, I was there at one point as well. Um, I know what it's like to be in that dark place where you really, you really don't see any hope for yourself and for others around you because you're, because it really comes down to value at this point. And, and a lot of it's not based in reality that I've talked about before. And I think people who have been there now on the other side, see that 
it's based upon because you're really just not healthy in your mind. You know, mental illness is a real thing. And obviously you were suffering from things going on in your life, but also from postpartum depression. And that's the reason I did want you to speak on that a little bit further because I know that it can be a really bad thing. It's not just something that you said that will pass. Um, being undiagnosed, it could lead to severe consequences. Yes, it can. And when um, I had Ryan, because I had to stop my um, antidepressants when I was pregnant with Ryan, um, and they started me right on them in the hospital again after Ryan was born um, so that, you know, to kind of have that off. But they do take a couple weeks to build up in your system. Mm -hmm. So I did, um, you know, when we brought Ryan home, I did have a couple of weeks where I was very sad, but it never built to the point that it did after Kyle. And to this day, I still have to take, like, antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Were you always waiting after you had your second son, thinking, okay, it's going to come back again, and I'm going to be in this very dark depression again? Were you just kind of waiting for it to hit? Um, yes and no, like, because I knew I had started on the medication, so that if it did its job correctly, mm -hmm. that I should be okay. But, again, I was afraid because I wanted to have a quality time with Ryan that I felt I missed with Ryan. I'm sorry, with Kyle because mm -hmm. of the depression that I had had. So that was always a fear. Um, you know, I have memories of rocking Ryan, like when he was a few days old, um, before the medication, you know, had built up. I'm just rocking him and crying and not even knowing, like, why I'm crying and thinking. Like you said, oh, no, it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, being in that dark place, I'm sure having the fear, knowing especially that it was postpartum depression, thinking that this is, I'm going to go through this again, and how am I going to do this for these kids? Um, and, and, I, and, and, I, and knowing that and sometimes you can be lucky when you go through depression, you have the support of, like you said, your best friend, um, your spouse, and I didn't have that. Like, I just felt so alone. Yeah, and I think it's important to let people know is that you're not alone. If you're in that dark place right now and you're feeling you don't have value, you don't have any hope, please take the courage to reach out to somebody. Um, Michelle's been through it. I've been through it. And it's not easy to ask for that help, but the, there's people who will be there for you. Um, so don't feel like you don't have any value. Don't feel like you don't have any way out. Please reach out to anybody. If you're listening right now and you're feeling that way, you have value and you matter. And your people in your life need you. So just reach out and stay positive as much as you can. Michelle, um, I had asked a moment ago, how old were your kids at that point when things were going a little bit further bad in your marriage with Dan and um, leading to some other abusive situations? How was your oldest feeling at this point? How was that affecting him? Um, the abuse actually was starting to turn towards Kyle at that point. Um, Around, around the age of 11 or 12 for Kyle. Kyle and Ryan are nine years apart. Mm -hmm. So Kyle, um, I can remember it mostly like age 12 for Kyle, where um, it would become almost a battle of wills between him and his father. Kyle always liked to wear socks to bed at night. Mm -hmm. um, and for whatever reason, Dan didn't think Kyle should be wearing socks to bed at night. So they would have a fight every night about it. <laughs> Something so silly as socks. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would try to intervene by saying, you know, it's not harming him to me, you know, if he's doing something that's going to harm him in some way or is wrong, that's when we should step in mm -hmm. a preference about wearing socks to bed. 
Dan's thing became that he felt it was disrespectful on Kyle's part. He was going to respect him whether he wanted to or not. Make remember one night him wrestling Kyle to the floor, sitting on him, taking the socks off of his feet so that he would listen mm-hmm. to him. Um, other times, like if he felt that Kyle wasn't paying attention to him, he would hold him at the um, like around his neck, kind of right under his chin, um, to force Kyle to look at him while he was talking with him. Um, there were times he would sit on Kyle, like on his bed, forcing Kyle if he felt Kyle wasn't looking at him. Um, We never had a peaceful family dinner. Mm -hmm. Dan always would find fault with me or with Kyle um, and start, you know, a fight at dinner. I should go back a little and explain at this point, Dan's drinking had escalated to a point where he was drinking every day. Um, He would Mm -hmm. leave work early. He would always be home about 3 o'clock. And the first thing he would do when he came in the house was to pop a beer um, before even coming up to see us. He didn't think he had a drinking problem when I would bring it up to him because he said he only drank beer. So you Mm -hmm. can't be an alcoholic, he felt, if you only drink beer, which isn't true. Right. At that point, he was drinking like a 36-pack a day to every two days. He was running to the package store to get that wow so i should say so it had escalated quite a bit at this point mm-hmm. um where he was you know angry um kyle would leave the table at night because he wouldn't want to argue with his father dan would follow him away from the table um to continue the argument and ryan who was three years old would be running after dan trying to grab onto his leg saying stop yelling at my brother because he couldn't talk i'm sure so um you know to have that side of you three-year-old trying to protect like his 12 year old brother is just Mm -hmm. it's horrible i'm sure it was devastating it was as a mom to see that that i'm sure probably at this point you felt like i've let this happen i've let us get to where we're at right now i did I did. I felt that way. Like, um, it's one thing for him to treat me that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me as a mother to let that happen to my children, I really felt like I had failed them. Um, as a mother, it's my job to protect them Mm -hmm. and to have my three-year-old doing something that I should have been doing. It's pretty bad. So you had talked about Dan, your husband, um, at points, sitting on your son, making him look at him, you know, being all about the control, basically. Did things ever get physically abusive, or was it just more of a verbal type thing with your children? Um, mostly, um, he would put Kyle down in the way that he used to do me. Um, Kyle played baseball, um, and Dan, when he would get mad at him, told him he was a horrible baseball player. He didn't know why the team wanted him anymore. Um, He he was good at trying to find what he thought were insecurities in people or their weak Mm -hmm. spots and using it against them. Um, It would make fun of him if Kyle talked about a particular girl that he might like at school. You know, he was 12 years old. Right. Um, Why would any girl want to like him? You know, he was nerdy looking, he was a geek, 
he was stupid. Um, which again, as a mother, like, I, I'm horrified that I let him do those things to our children. I bet. So what do things look like going forward from there? You know, things are increasing. The drinking's increasing. The verbal abuse, the demeaning, everything is increasing. What was happening next? Um, things just seemed it seemed to fall apart very quickly after that. Um, in the fall of 2009, I had to go in to the hospital for... Um, a day procedure. I had had a um, pap smear that came back very regular that showed mm -hmm. like pre-cancer. So I had to have part of my cervix removed, which is very common, not common, common, but can happen a lot with women. It wasn't serious, but sure. it was a day surgery. And the doctor had told us that because of the type of surgery that I, that I had had, Dan and I couldn't be intimate for like six weeks mm -hmm. following that. Um, the day after the procedure, Dan again was drunk, which at this point had become pretty much his natural state of things. Right. And, um, said no doctor was going to tell him what he could do with his wife. Um, and proceeded to do what we weren't supposed to do for six weeks. Um, basically he raped me. Um, knowing that the doctor had said not to do that, and he caused further damage by doing so, and didn't let me go back to the doctors. Afterwards, there was a lot of bleeding. I don't want to go into graphics about it, but a lot. Sure. And he would not let me go back to the doctor because then the doctor would have known what had happened. Um, a couple of months after that incident, there was a second incident where we had been in the bedroom um, fighting which was becoming normal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he took it too far that he wanted to have um, sex. I, that's all I can describe it now as we certainly never made love anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Ryan was at the bedroom door trying to get in, again, three years old, knocking at the door, wanting to know why I was okay. Um, and Dan pushed me up against the door to block Ryan from coming in. And again, basically raped me with that three-year-old child trying to get in oh, to the man. room and crying for his mom. Um, at the time, I didn't know that it could be called rape if you were married. Um, mm -hmm. To me, rape was something that happened either between strangers or, I mean, we all knew about date rape, but right. you're married, so how can it be rape? I learned later on in getting help from myself that just because I was married, to someone doesn't mean that I lose control over my body or mm -hmm. have a say what happens to myself or my body and that um, someone taking me in violence like that is not okay um, and that was important to know a lot of people don't know that there is spousal rape out there mm -hmm. and it is an important thing to know that no. just just no. because you're married your spouse doesn't have the right to take mm -hmm. you or do whatever they want to your body. And I appreciate you saying this. Um, what you guys don't know is Michelle and I talked briefly before the podcast and she was maybe kind of worried about bringing this up a little bit. And, and it is a very sensitive subject, but it's a real subject. And I, I, I applaud you, Michelle, for being brave enough to talk about that today on the podcast 
Um, I'm sure that's not easy for you to bring up these memories again and to relive them, but I really think that's a powerful thing, a message to women out there that it just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean it's okay. And right. um, you do have a right to protect your own body anytime, and it's not okay at any time, any place, with any person. So I appreciate you being brave enough to share that with us right here. Thank you. Um, so, again, like I said, in these few months, things were escalating very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom would tell me that she could see a difference in me, um, that I didn't seem the same. I didn't seem happy. Um, this brought us to it was right around the holidays of 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, we had gotten a puppy in that time period, Snickers. Um, it's a cute who name. Was, he had these cute little beagle. <laughs> Um, who the boys absolutely adored. I thought he was so cute. So, of course, we were house training the puppy. And I can remember the date. It was December twenty second, 2009. The puppy had an accident on the floor, as puppies mm-hmm. tend to do. Absolutely. Dan picked up the puppy by the scruff of the neck, was shaking him, and told the boys that when they came home from school the next day, the puppy wouldn't be there, that he was going to be gone. Then I looked at those two boys' faces just crying that they were losing their dog. So I took them, we put them in the car, and we drove around. We got hot chocolate, looked at the Christmas lights, mm-hmm. and stayed out long enough to the point that we know that Daddy had fallen asleep, as the boys would call it, on the couch, which basically meant he passed out every night. And I told them not to worry that the puppy would still be there mm-hmm. the next day they weren't losing their puppy. Um, so when we got home, I put them to bed. Dan was like asleep or passed out, whatever you want to call it on the couch. And I can remember the next morning he got up and he apologized as he usually did the following day. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to him, you know, if I had known this is what life with you was going to be like when I met you, I would never have gone to that wedding with you. Never would have dated you, never would have married you, never would have had children with you. I can't do this anymore. And he promised that he was going to change. He mm-hmm. was going to start going to AA. Um, had all the excuses. You know, work was really difficult. He was sorry for bringing it home. Right. He loved us. Um, things would be different. So I wanted to believe him. You know, at this point, it's like two days before Christmas. So I agreed to see if things could be different. And over the next couple of months, basically things were no different. Um, you know, the, the verbal abuse continued. Um, if anything, his, I don't know if you want to call it paranoia or jealousy amped up. Mm-hmm. If I was on the computer, he'd be looking over um, my shoulder to see what I was um, talking on Facebook with my friends about. I had gone out to an event with my friends, a ladies' night out that he showed up at. So, I guess nothing was changing. And on February 7th, 2010, I went out to lunch with my mother, and she said to me, Michelle, you need to do something. Um, She's like, I hate seeing you like this. Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't even recognize you anymore. Um... She's like, I think I know that Dan has a drinking problem because I shouldn't put here. I had tried to hide it from my friends and family, mm-hmm. um, what was going on in our life. Nobody, nobody 
knew about the verbal abuse, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse. I told no one because I was afraid of what they would think of Dan. I was trying to protect him because I wanted my friends to still like him. I wanted my family to still love him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I kind of – oh, sorry. No, I wanted to ask you – I wanted to ask you, you talked about you trying to hide this, about all the different kinds of abuses that you were going through with your family, the sexual, the emotional, the verbal. And I'm sure there are other people who are going through this or have been through this. What, what are some of those signs that maybe as a family member would see their loved one hiding something? What, what would be a way that we hide or shield them so no one knew that was going on? Um, are you talking about ways that I would hide it or signs family members should look for in their loved one? Well, you know, both. If you want to speak um, to either one. Well, things that I, you know, my mother says afterwards she realized um, the things that she saw was that I wasn't calling her as much my mom and I were always very close Mm -hmm. even though I thought I was a horrible daughter um she said I I wasn't a horrible daughter we were very close we're like best friends my mom and I so she noticed my calls to her started um being less frequent or very short in nature I wasn't Mm -hmm. inviting her over to the house as often I never had friends over to the house um as often and if we went to events with my family, we would usually just there for a short time um, and would leave. Mm-hmm. Um, things that I did, like for my family, not to notice Dan's behavior again, were this kind of the same thing. Limited time my family could be at the house um, when I knew that he would be drinking. Um, you know, and then basically just telling lies all the time, talking about these wonderful things we did daily what a good father he was you know he Mm -hmm. got us a puppy um right so that yet nobody in my life nobody not my friends my family had any idea what was going on in my marriage um except that day my mother told me that she had an idea but she didn't even she was maybe just at the tip of it of what was going on right so things have come to a head finally you're at this lunch with your mom on february 7th and she's telling you, Michelle, you need help. Right. So she said, um, Ryan was with us for lunch. She said, I'm taking Ryan to my house. I'm going to grab Kyle off the bus because my mother doesn't live too far from me. Mm-hmm. And the school bus would go by. She's like, um, you need to go home. You need to have a talk with Dan. Um, she's like, something has to change. She's like, I know you're not happy. She's like, it's killing me to see you like this. Um, and during that lunch, a few things did come out. Um, with her I told her about Dan's drinking but definitely not the full um, effect of how much he did drinking right I was drinking I'm sorry and she said she had had an idea of that because my stepfather who at this he was gone but he had been a, a recovering alcoholic like 30 years sober he saw the signs I think one alcoholic can see it as another okay. he always thought Dan maybe had a drinking problem. Again, not to the extent that it truly was. Right. Um, And I did tell her, I said, I'm not happy, mom. I'm not happy. And she said, you know, you need to do what's going to make you happy. If it's getting out, you know, you need to get out. There's no greater reward at the end of one's life for staying in a bad relationship. So I went home. Dan was already home. He had been drinking. You know, the boys were with my mom. So I said, we need to have a talk. 
And he's like, about what? And I'm like, about us. So he says, should I be worried? So I say, yes. And before I can go any further into Mm -hmm. why I'm worried, because in my mind, I'm saying you should worry because I'm thinking the marriage is over. I want out. He goes ballistic and starts accusing me. He thinks that there's someone else in my life. Um, And I tell him that's not it. I'm unhappy with the marriage. I can't remember the last time I've had a lot, you know, that I've laughed, that we've laughed together, mm-hmm. that I've smiled, um, that I've wanted you to touch me. That's why you should be worried. Um, so I guess in his mind, it's, un- you know, unconceivable that I would want to leave this marriage from mm-hmm. him. There has to be another reason behind it. It can't be him. Um, he's done everything for me. That's what he keeps saying. I've done everything for you. Everything I've done is to make you happy. What is the matter with you? How can, so at that point he grabs me by the throat and puts me up against the wall and is yelling in my face to the point I've seen him angry. I've never seen him this angry. Um, you know, I could smell the beer on his breath and he cocks his arm back and he went to hit me and I braced for myself waiting to feel the punch in the face, which didn't come. He hit the wall next to my head instead and punched a hole in the wall. Um, And he was storming around the house. I was sobbing, trying to calm him down. So at that point, he says, you know, I'm going to get the boys. I'm taking these boys. You're never going to see them again. So I start to plead with him. Please don't do this. Please don't take my boys. I think we can work it out if we can get some help. Um, and he turned and he punched another hole in another wall and then left the house. And I remember calling my mother to warn her that he was on his way over. So I was afraid mm-hmm. he would hurt my mom begging her. Don't let him in. Don't let him take those boys. Cause I just couldn't lose, lose my boys. I'm sure. So she advised me to call the police, um, which I did. And they came to the house Um, The officer was so nice. He sat down with me on the couch and said he couldn't take me, but advised me to go um, to Hingham Court, um, which is a few towns over from us, Mm -hmm. um, to get a restraining order to protect myself and my boys, Mm -hmm. which is a word that I never thought or a phrase I would never have thought would pertain to my life as a restraining order against my husband. In my work as a social worker, I had sat with um, young women in court, gone with them to court. So I used to work with low-income families. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these women had boyfriends or husbands that were abusive to them. And I would sit with them in court, help them get a restraining order. And I couldn't believe this is what my life had come to. Um, but I got in the car, sobbed the whole way to the courthouse. Um, had to go in and tell them what I was there for. Um, they called up the court advocate. There's always a woman's advocate in the courthouse that will help um, a woman or even a man um, that needs to file for a restraining order. will walk you through the process. Um, she stands with you or mm-hmm. he stands with you in the courtroom as you present it to the judge. I can remember filling out that paper for the restraining order, just sobbing my hand shaking as I had to write down all these details right. of what had got us to this point. And then to stand in front of the judge 
all these other strangers in the courtroom who are there for their matters and have to explain why I'm there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the judge did grant, the, it's like an emergency restraining order that's good for two weeks, where Dan was not allowed to be in contact in any way with me or the boys or to come to the house anywhere near my work or their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be served to him by the police. At this point, when this is going on, I want to have two questions for you right here. One, how important is it for people who are going to be going through this process? They're going to be having to go file this restraining order to have that advocate there for them to know, because I'm sure it's very scary. Like you were saying, you were shaking, you were sobbing. There's people sitting there as you have to spell out your life in front of them, but while you're there, how important is it to have that advocate there? It's very important um, because she can tell you, you know, cause basically that report you have to fill out is kind of a blank piece of paper. You put your name, your husband's name, um, or, you know, the other party's name, I should say. And then basically you have to write out what you're looking for. Um, so she helps you, like, basically you just want to hit the highlights of why you're in fear for your life. Cause basically okay. that's a, what a restraining order is. You fear for your life, your safety, or that of others. Um, so she helped me with the wording of it and not to make it like pages and pages long because they didn't need to know all that. They needed to know what happened right then mm-hmm. um, that led me to be afraid of Dan at that point, why I was worried about my safety and the safety of my boys. You know, she sat with me in that courtroom holding my hand um, while I waited for my turn to go up in front of the judge. You know, she kept her arm around me while I talked to the judge, kind of guided me in my answers to the judge. Because mm-hmm. um, he would ask a question, and um, basically he just wants a short answer back, like why he should grant this restraining order. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually helped me over the next two weeks. Um, she would call to check in with me, um, prepared me for what the next step was going to be when we went back to court. Um and at that point, I felt like she was the only one kind of on my side. Right. Um, when Dan left the house that day, he's never been back to this house, like, since that day. Um, but then when I had to tell my family why he had left um, and all the dirty secrets came out, right? nobody believed it. Like, my mom knew I was unhappy, but then when I started telling her more about it, she kind of thought maybe I was exaggerating Right. I think. Or downplayed the fact of the rape that I talked to her about. Right. Um, so my family actually was on Dan's side when he first left this house. How did that make you feel? So you finally get to a point where you're being brave enough to get that restraining order, to get Dan out of your life, get him away from you so you're safe, get him away from your children so they're safe. Then you go to your next trusted source beyond who you think would be your spouse. And you start spilling your story to them, telling them your truth. And they start to side with the person who's been abusing you for these years. What was that feeling like for you? Um, it's so lonely. Like, I was so alone. And to feel that I had to defend myself against my family. Because when I started to talk about Dan having a drinking problem, my sisters were like, well, we see you drink when you go out. You know, you like to go out and have a good time. And to explain that it went further beyond that. Right it kind of came back to bite me in the butt because I had done such a good job of protecting Dan from my family, wanting to make sure that everybody still loved him, Mm -hmm. that they didn't see the problems in our marriage, that now nobody could believe it of him. 
you know, that he was this person that I was saying that he was, um, you know, so he was able to call and talk to my family every day, you know, um, cause he wasn't able to contact me or the boys, but he was at my mother's house all the time crying. You know, he didn't understand how this could happen. My brother-in-laws were taking them out for a beer like, oh, <laughs> and nobody was there for me, um, at this time except for my um, best friend who is actually a social worker herself mm-hmm. and kind of saw beyond like my lies and she kind she'd gone on vacations with us so she kind of had a glimpse um, and I think she knew me so well um, that she knew I was telling the truth um, so she was there for me but to not have your own family believe you um, I can't even describe that feeling I'm sure that was very isolating and alone, especially when, like I said, you had taken that chance to be brave and then to realize that since you had protected him so well and told so many different lies that they believed it, that you were still alone. When did that start to change a little bit? When did they start to believe you and maybe kind of finally feel the truth or see the truth? Um, so after the initial restraining order ex- was due to expire, um, cause you get that emergency restraining order for two hours, um, sorry, two weeks. Right. And then a date is set for two weeks from that, which Dan is allowed to be present for. Um, so he was pleading his case about how he wanted to make our marriage work. He wanted to be let back into the house. Um, fortunately for me, the judge didn't see, um, that that is a smart idea. And Dan actually, he couldn't hold it together in court and actually got mad at the judge, started yelling at the judge, um, kind of showed his true colors there. So he was ordered by the judge to go to AA and to anger management classes before he would be allowed to have any interaction with me. And he could only have supervised visits with the boys at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was angry with the judge because how was he going to work on his marriage? getting his life back, you know, basically the judge told him, you need to work on yourself first. Mm -hmm. Um, So then he went to work on my family, trying to get them to convince me to drop the restraining order. Um, And when they weren't willing to do that, you know, they kind of wanted to stay out of it. They started to see some more of his true colors. Um, He verbally attacked my mother one day, um, broke a window, trying to get into her back door. Um, you know, someone putting on an act like that, they can't carry, you know, you can't pretend for a long time. Right. Your true colors are going to come out. Um, and my family, you know, came to me, they feel really, really bad that they were taken in, I think, by him. Um, it still comes up once in a while. I know my mother, especially, um, she's talked about, you know, how she hates herself for the fact that she wasn't there for me in the beginning that she was mm-hmm. taken in by him but that's what he does too you know he can pretend and i think part of it was my fault for not reaching out to my family during those dark times sharing with them what i was going through um you know i couldn't blame them that in one afternoon all this truth comes spewing out and they're kind of like what like we everything has seemed fine for years. Right. Well, I still don't think it's appropriate for you to say it was your fault. I think that's probably the mindset from years of this, you going through this, but it's not your fault because you couldn't reach out. You couldn't, Mm -hmm. 
you're in that dark place. Um, your husband had taken complete control over your life and your children and your value and everything. So I don't want you to think it's your fault. You know, could maybe hopefully people have seen signs maybe. Yeah, but I want you to know right now you didn't do anything wrong. I'm sure you still, I think you know that at your core because we've talked about it, but you're an amazing woman, Michelle. And mm -hmm. so don't even as of today to say it was my fault. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't your fault. You're right. You're right. Um, and my family at the time came around me. Um, you know, they helped as much as they could. They were there by my side each time that I had to go in to renew that restraining order. Good. Um, cause that day, February 7th, 2010, like changed my life. Um, I wasn't going back anymore. And I have to say, um, it was scary. It's a scary decision to make. I was only working part time. Mm -hmm. Um, after we had Ryan, I only wanted to work part-time. Dan only wanted me to work part-time. So I was bringing in maybe $200 a week. He was supporting pretty much our family. So, um, you know, and I think he kind of held that over me, like, you know, that the fact that I only had $200 a week. So if he left, mm -hmm. how was the mortgage going to get paid? How was I going to put food on the table for my kids? How was I going to clothe my kids? Um, but you know what? That's a common fear that women or men could be in a relationship where it's very violent and they want to leave, but they're scared because of the finances. And that's one of the bigger reasons people don't leave. That is, yeah, I would have to say probably one of the biggest reasons. And it was going through my mind um, for those couple months before then, um, before I made the decision that day. Because after that event, right before Christmas, I was like, how can I stay? And I would play it over in my mind. How do I stretch $800 a month, you know, that I was bringing in mm -hmm. um, to take care of my family? Um, you know, who's going to help with the childcare if I had to get a full-time job to support my family? Who was even going to fix the little things around the house that needed to be fixed? Um, I had never lived on my own. As I said before, I went from living at my mother's into my marriage. So I had never lived on my own, been mm -hmm. in charge of a household. Um, and I found there were resources to help me, um, resources that I never thought I'd find myself in the position to have to use. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to take some steps that to me made me feel I had hit rock bottom, but that I had to do to take care of my kids. Right. I had to go on um, food stamps um, in order to put food on the table for my kids. Sure. I had to apply for fuel assistance to keep our house warm. <coughs> Sorry. I, um, after some time when the bills started coming in and I was taking care of the bills, I realized that Dan's drinking problem was eating up actually most of our money, you know, because he was buying a 30 set, 36 pack of beer like every day to every two days. Mm -hmm. And things were being charged. He was actually going to bars, strip clubs, charging it. Um, so I had to file for bankruptcy um, in order to be able to keep my house, to keep a roof over the kid's head, um, to be able to pay the bills that needed to be paid, um, like our electric bill, water bill. Right. Um, 
those aren't things I ever thought I'd see myself doing. Like bankruptcy, I always felt was for, um, and this is a term I'm going to use from the past of how I used to think, but was for losers like that didn't want to pay their bills. Right. Um, you know, who files for bankruptcy? Um, but when you're getting a $10,000 credit card bill from packy store purchases, purchases at like bars and strip clubs and just everything that I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, I was making $200 a week. How was I going to pay that, um, you know, and maintain my mortgage? Um, food stamps, that was basically, I thought, for moms that didn't want to work. Right. Um, well, I but, think it's important to say here is that you had to go to some serious extremes to get out of that relationship, to get away from that violence, to get your kids away from it. And you doing things that you never would have thought, like you associated with bad people. The only bad people do these things. Only people who don't want to work, or you said, quote unquote, losers who, you know, didn't pay their bills did that. But that was a reality for you. And I think you should wear that as a badge of honor that you did that as a strength thing. You were building mm -hmm. yourself back up, and you had to go all the way to the bottom to do that. But that was okay for you. And I am thankful now, and I tell other women out there, I'm thankful those resources are there. Mm -hmm. And actually, those are those resources are there for the people like us. Um, you know, that, those allowed me to get myself and my boys out of a bad situation mm -hmm. when I needed them. Um, you know, like I said, to provide food for my children, to keep my house warm, um, to start fresh from debt that really wasn't mine i mean my name was on it too but right um you know so that was kind of like rock bottom for me but all i kept thinking you know and through all that though i was happy i was happy every time at the end of the month that my checking account read zero but all my bills were paid um and we were still in our house and mm -hmm. my boys weren't hungry and we were warm and i did that on my own um i was happy like and i saw my boys were happy Mm -hmm. We were laughing together. Um, you know, we had dinners where nobody was fighting. Um, so that was all, it was all, was all worth it um, right. for me. And, you know, over time I got myself a full-time job in the social work field, helping other people. Um, you know, and I didn't need those resources anymore, but I was thankful they were there to help me get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. um, and well, I'm glad that they helped me get out of the situation so that my boys now know that it's not okay. You know, I, my biggest fear, I guess, was with my boys. I didn't want them to grow up thinking this is okay. This is how I can grow up to be. I can treat my wife or my girlfriend like this. And it's okay because right. my mom did it. And if my mom could do it, you know, then why is it wrong? Right. And I didn't want them to turn out to be like their father. I didn't want them to be an alcoholic. I didn't want them to be so angry at their life and everybody right. around them. Well, you should be very proud of you. I'm proud of you that you broke that cycle and you saw that even though it was so hard, so scary, so dark, and you had to do things that you didn't think you would ever have to do. But like you said, it was a little things that made you happy. It wasn't about having all this money and a, um, all these funds and things available. It was just, hey, we got through dinner and we're laughing. We're not yelling at each other. 
look, we're sitting around. I might have zero dollars, but I paid my bills. My kids are fed. I'm happy. And I don't think you can understate the value of being happy and having that sense of having hope again to see mm-hmm. a future for yourself and your boys without that violence and that darkness. So you should feel really good about what you did and should still feel great about it today, which I'm, I know that because you're on the podcast and you're sharing your story and that it's very hopeful for others. It is. Um, I you know, have come across a few women in my line of work that talk about it and I share my story with them. You know, and I do tell them, I'm like, I'm not going to lie. It's not going to be easy. Like, you're not going to have money. Um, you know, when my kids wanted to go for an ice cream, and I couldn't even afford that, like, and mm-hmm. I'd cry. Um, but then I had the triumphs of the first time I changed my shower head in the house by myself. Because <laughs> as I had said before, I always lived with someone to, to be able to do those things. But I painted a room by myself. Um you know, that made me so happy. And I can see that my boys are proud. You know, they were proud of me for those little things right. that I did too. And I think the most thing I'm proud of right now is the men that they're turning out to be. Cause I did have that fear that he stayed in their life for so long that not so much Ryan, but Kyle, um, he was right. a young man. How was he going to be? And I have to say he has grown up to be such a respectful young man he's um in the national guard he's military police in the national guard going to school for criminal justice um is that's amazing very respectful to me and his young brother and ryan has turned out to be a great young man which i couldn't hope for anything more um i'm in a very loving relationship now with a gentleman named mike um who is fate would have it was an alcoholic <laughs> before I met him, mm-hmm. um, but has been 12 years sober. Um, well, congratulations great, to him. Thank you. <laughs> and he's a great partner to me. He's a great role model for my boys. And he helps me because unfortunately we have children together. So Dan and I still have to have contact. Um, and he still tries to blame me for a lot and manipulate me for a lot. But Mike is good at keeping me grounded and letting me know those are like so much the tricks of an alcoholic right um and prevent you he tries to prevent me from falling back into you know not valuing myself and realizing that you know those what that's what an alcoholic does right and i think it's good that you've grown so much now that you don't believe those lies anymore and you know those aren't true because you've seen where you are at what you went through and where you're at now. And, and mm-hmm. it's good that you can see yourself in a positive relationship and a loving relationship, a supporting relationship, and how important that is to you and to your boys, what an impact that's been on your life. That is mm-hmm. so, what a great feeling that must be for you. It is. It's, it is a great feeling um, to know true love, true partnership, friendship, um, and to see my boys have a healthy role model to look up to. That's awesome, Michelle. Um, you've done amazing things with your life since then. Like I said, you got into the role of being a social worker because you wanted to help people in your same situation. And I know you don't do that anymore. What, what do you do now in the same light that you get to help people? Um, I'm still a social worker, but I'm doing hospice work now. Um, you know, where I come in, you know, my hospice team is invited into someone's life kind of at the end of their 
at the end of their life of a terminal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I do work, you know, a lot of people think hospice might be for older people, but I have worked with some um, women and men in their 30s and up, you know, into their elder years. Um, and I, li- I really like my job. Um, I'm there for, you know, the final stages of someone's life to help them pass peacefully from this world into the next. And I have notes with some of the people that I've been given the um, pleasure to know that they do have regrets at the end of their life, too. It's amazing. Some of the women that I have met, um, their years span, and some have been in abusive relationships, too, and still struggle to this day um, you know, with the choice that they made. And mm-hmm. we talk through that so they can pass peacefully. You know, women who are in their 90s that back... You know, when they were in their 20s and 30s, you didn't leave, you know, an abusive marriage. You stayed in your marriage. Um, And they have regrets about that. And then other women who did leave and, like me, you know, didn't have money maybe to raise their children. So they started, did they do the right thing? So I get to talk to them, talk through that, and help them find peace at the end Mm -hmm. um, of their life and to find you know, to value themselves and to feel good about the decisions that they made. That is amazing, Michelle. Uh, I'm sure you didn't think years ago when you were in that dark place. I mean, we talked about you taking pills and wanting to end your life, that you'd be here now, first of all, being very strong and courageous and sharing your story for others, but also you're being with people who are at the end of their life who this is it. They're talking about all the regrets, all their feelings, and you get to help them say, it's okay. It's okay. You made the right decision. And I don't think that can be understated how amazing that is that you're there for someone like that, especially for those families that you're such a good support for them, that you're there helping that person pass peacefully on. So you should be really proud of that. It is. I feel very lucky to be able to do the work that I do right now and that um, these families and these patients invite me into their lives, you know, mm-hmm. at this time. Michelle, you, you went through a lot abusive, sexual, verbal abuse, what bit of hope and encouragement could you offer for somebody who's going through this right now or maybe has been through it and now they're dealing with the aftermath? What's something that you could offer them right now? Um, That it it will get better, um, that you are a strong person. You don't deserve that no matter what anybody tells you. You have value. There are people out there that love you, that want to help you. There's resources out there to help you and so many people that want to see you succeed um, and that you can succeed, that you deserve happiness. Like my mother told me, there's no greater reward at the end of our life for staying in a you know, bad situation. Um, we all deserve happiness. Mm-hmm. There's nothing selfish about wanting to be happy. Absolutely. I think that is amazing advice. And I have Michelle's contact information I'm going to put in our show notes. So if you have anything that you want to ask her that you're going through, she is an amazing resource, and she has agreed to answer any of your questions, any emails, things like that. Um, And there also is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and that number is 1-800-799-7233. And again, uh, I will also put that in the show notes as well. Don't forget that there is hope out there, guys, and that you can get the help if you need it and that there is somebody waiting for you on the other side to do that. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your strength and your honesty. 
Thank you, Tim. Thank you for letting me be here today. Absolutely. Well, what a privilege it was for Michelle being on the podcast today. We really can't thank her enough for coming on and being willing to share what she called was her dirty little secret. Um, not that a lot of people knew about that in her life and that she was able to be brave enough to come on and share that. So we really appreciate that and can't take away how powerful that was. Listening to Michelle's story, there are so many different takeaways about value and how our value is placed so many times in other people's hands. And it, it can be different in a friendship relationship type of way where a lot of times we get our value from our friends, how they perceive us, or maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But really, it took on a whole new meaning of value in this relationship, in this marriage, um, with the, at the being at the hands of the abuse, the value really came into play. And you could tell in her story where she felt like, this guy is really good looking and handsome. I don't deserve anything like that. I don't deserve anyone like that. And that feeling of being loved and being claimed really set her apart in that way where she let other things slide because she was afraid, who else is going to want me? And I know a lot of us deal with that. And you may be dealing with that right now where you just feel like you have a one-way ticket on the hot mess express, you know? And nobody wants to be part of that, and, and it's scary. But I don't want you to get in a place where you can't get out because you feel like, hey, who's going to want me right now? So I am willing to let anything slide just to be claimed, just to be loved, just to be valued. And so if we can take any kind of small part of the story, just to thinking about in daily life, how we get our own value. And you may not be in an abusive relationship or something like that, but you may be in a relationship or a friendship or th something like that where the value is really being placed on how you look, how many likes you get on a post, things like that. And I want you to take a look at it and step back and say, okay, I do have value. I do matter for more than this, for more than my looks, for more than what I have to offer or to give to somebody. It's about how much I value myself, how much I love myself. And I want you to know that you do have that today and to not let go of that. In her story, she brought up different kinds of abuse that she was at the hands of. And, you know, sometimes at the end of these shows, I do like to look up statistics about um, the topic that we talked about today. And this one uh, really stuck out for me here. It says, the number of American troops killed in Afghanistan and Iraq between 2001 and 2012 was 6,488 such great losses for people who are serving our country. But the number of American women who were murdered by current or ex-male partners during that same time was 11,766. That's nearly double the amount of casualties lost during war. I mean, if that doesn't hit home or hit you right where you're at and make you think, oh my gosh, domestic violence we know is a big problem, but to see that number, that almost there were double the casualties from women who were murdered by an ex-male partner during that same time frame than we lost in that entire war, is it's crazy, and it's such a scary thing. And that's why we need to keep on putting this in the spotlight, keep talking about it, so we know that people can get some help, and the people who are in it, they can see that they have hope to get out, and. 
something that Michelle talked about and that women and some men also suffer from during these types of things is they're kind of held captive by three different types of uh, abuse in a domestic violence situation. There is the physical abuse. These the emotional abuse. But the one that Michelle talked about at the very end, um, which I think can really hit home for men and women, is the financial abuse. And Michelle talked about, you know, at the peak of everything going on, when she wanted to walk away, she was scared because she was only making $200 a week and thought, how am I going to feed my family, feed myself, take care of this house, warm the house, keep my kids safe? And that really played into her being scared to leave. And I'm glad she talked about really humbling herself and using those services that are available, like the food stamps, the heat assistance. And when you're in those situations, now you realize this isn't for people who are deadbeats, who are losers. These are people who really need the assistance. And I think it was amazing and brave and strong of Michelle to talk about that, you know, because it's probably not easy again to tell everybody, oh, I was on food stamps and, and I had this and that going on. But you know what she talked about? She was happy. It didn't matter that she didn't have the extra money every month. It didn't matter that she couldn't go buy the ice cream for her kids. It didn't matter that she had an abundance of wealth and things like that and all these materialistic things. She said even when her bank account was at zero, she was happy. When all they had was just the food that day and the clothes on their back and that heat for that night, she was happy because she didn't have that violence every day. They could have a normal meal. She could make accomplishments in her home, and she was happy. And I think there's a lot to be said about being happy. Uh, I think a lot of us settle for things um, because we're comfortable, because we, we don't want to leave that comfort zone, even though it may not be in a good situation. And we also trade comfort zone for happiness sometimes. And I think if you listen to Michelle's story, use her as an example for courage that you can step out, get out of that situation, and be happy again. Michelle also talked about the job she's in now, be it that it's a tough job, very hard to be with people in that very last moments and days of their life, that she found that when she could help them pass to the other side, that so many of them still had regrets and things that they had never had resolved. And it made me think, and hopefully it makes you guys think also, is what am I holding on to? You know, what's it going to be like for me at the end? What am I fighting for? You know, what regrets am I going to have at the end? To take a look inside and think, what am I going through? What have I held back? Who have I not said I love you to in a long time? What grudge am I holding on to? And these things that maybe happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, you're still holding on to all of that. And I want you to take a second and let go of it. Because really at the very end, what are we fighting for? And to not be that person with all these regrets at the end and all these build-up animosity and anger and grudges and things like that, just to take a breath and let it go. Give it to God and let go of these regrets and do not have anything like that at the end. I think one of the greatest quotes was from Michelle's mom in this podcast. She said, there is no greater reward at the end of one's life for staying in a bad relationship. That is a big wow moment. Take a minute and think about that. And I don't think that necessarily has to be a relationship abusive one. Um, 
think about it as a bad work relationship or a bad friend relationship or a bad money relationship, a bad health relationship. That just keeps going on and on and on. There is no greater reward at the end of one's life for staying in a bad relationship. So you think about that today. What are you fighting for? What are you holding on to? Can you let it go? I'm not going to sing let it go, even though that would probably make our ratings go really high. But I, I really encourage you to think about the podcast, the things Michelle shared, and just that final thing. There's no reward for staying in a bad relationship. Let it all go. Give it to God and move over and get closer to that hope and encouragement for yourself. Guys, I can't tell you how much I love doing this podcast and hearing that people are getting that message of hope. And I want to connect with you guys still. So we can do that. You can go to my website at unwrittenlifepodcast.com. There's a contact form there where you can fill out, and my email is all there. Um, the conversation is going on all week on our Facebook group, which is the Unwritten Life Podcast. And then if you want to see pictures of people that I post about during the week, you can check us out on Instagram at the Unwritten Life Podcast. All these places are going to be great to catch up on the show notes and different things going on with the podcast. Maybe some new giveaways coming your way. Maybe definitely some giveaways coming your way. Definitely some giveaways. So keep that in mind. And again, um, I really appreciate you guys for tuning in. So listen, we've come to the end of yet another episode, but this is not the end of your story, the end of your journey at all. Remember, you matter, you can make a difference, and your story is still unwritten.